This podcast is made possible by Lincoln. Discover how uplifting a drive can be at lincolncanada.com. It's a brisk summer night in Ontario cottage country. 12-year-old Rose and her best friend Windy are on a walk along Owego Beach. Pebbles crunch under their bare feet as they guide their footsteps with bright flashlights. Rose shines her light and admires the rocks along the shore. The waves slowly roll in. Windy begins telling Rose a ghost story. It seems to get darker. Windy, quit it! She commands, slightly panicked. The girls hear something behind them. The sound sends them straight into each other's arms. They turn around and face the forest, shining a light into the trees. They see only darkness and the shadowy figures of branches in the wind. What was that? Windy asks Rose. Rose reassures her. Someone laughing. It's okay. It falls silent for a brief second. Then... Rose steps closer, peering deeply into the woods. She sees nothing. Rose turns her flashlight off, and the pair walk home. What you just heard didn't really happen. In fact, Owego Beach isn't even real. That was a scene from Canadian graphic novel This One Summer, a book co-created by cousins Jillian and Mariko Tamaki, about a pair of best friends navigating adolescence in a fictional beach town modeled after the Muskoka region of Ontario. Rose and Wendy have been visiting Owego Beach every summer for as long as they can remember and have only happy, playful memories associated with it. But this summer, they're preteens, becoming increasingly self-conscious, suddenly anxious about the actions of the people around them, people they've known their whole lives. The story centers around their coming-of-age process and how different their beloved beach town feels to them this year compared to how it felt when they were children. In that scene, midway through the novel, main characters Rose and Windy are strolling along the shore they've been coming to every year, walking in pure darkness with just a set of flashlights. Any other summer, this would have been a regular activity for the two of them, but now they're experiencing the social anxieties of teenagehood for the first time. So in this scene, when they hear what I'll describe as teen shenanigans from the trees behind them, they're scared. That comforting silence and the calm of the beach suddenly feels eerie. They no longer feel at home by the water they know so well. The reader never does find out what that rowdiness the girls heard was, but it doesn't really matter. This one summer, they're suddenly no longer kids, no longer at ease in the beach town they grew up playing in. They're conscious of themselves conscious of others, 
and the whisperings around them matter. When writer Mariko Tamaki crafted the plot of this book, she knew sound mattered, and she knew she had to get creative. This scene is one of many that's guided as much by sound as it is by plot. For a long time, I assumed that comic books and graphic novels were closely associated with action stories, intense tales of crime, fighting, destruction, and antagonism. I'd read Archie comics as a kid, sure, but I vividly remember in old Batman comics, the sound effects would be conveyed using words meant to mimic combative physical actions. Thwack, bam, kapow, and so on. It didn't occur to me until recently that sounds in graphic novels are also used to convey softer, deeper meanings. I'm Carly Lewis, your host of The Sound Of, a Globe Content Studio podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with Canadian graphic novelist Mariko Tamaki, known for works such as Skim, This One Summer, and Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, as well as the She-Hulk series, which she wrote for Marvel Comics. We'll explore how Mariko gets creative with the sounds she puts onto the page, and how she uses new and old writing techniques to make scenes hit home for readers. We'll unpack the sound of graphic novels. Conveying sound is a fundamental challenge when it comes to crafting a graphic novel. Books are a visual, silent medium, and so Mariko has to think hard about how to inform readers not only that a sound is being communicated, but how loud it is, and the tone or mood being expressed. She plays with the physical size and shape of words on the page, making loud effects like bangs and booms, large and domineering, drawn inside jagged edges to convey a sense of combativeness. Quiet sounds, like whispers or background noises, might be drawn physically smaller and placed on the page more subtly, in the corner of a frame, for example. In some ways, the thing about comics is that it's a visual medium, so there's sort of like the basic story of it and then sort of thinking about, per page or per panel, what exactly is happening in the moment. Sometimes it's just very utilitarian. Sometimes you're like, the cell phone rings. I decided a long time ago that whenever like a cell phone ring or like a cell phone notification would always be like ZZZT, like just the sound of your phone buzzing. There's some things that are sort of shorthand, almost expository. The phone is ringing, which is sort of you indicating as a writer, I want this to happen on the page. And then there's sometimes where, like, for example, a She-Hulk comic I did for Marvel with the illustrator Nico Leon. There's a scene where Jen, who is She-Hulk, is on the subway. It's about a person who is dealing with anxiety. You know, a lot of anxiety is sort of being in the moment and being in an environment and it being overwhelming. And again, a lot of this is, is decisions that you're leaving up to the illustrator. But part of what I wrote into the script was just like the sort of sound of the subway. Because the sound of the subway, to me, is like the most nerve-wracking sound. Like, if you're in a bad place, the sound of the subway is like the worst sound ever. Just to sort of indicate it being really big and overwhelming, I like wrote in the script in all caps, S-C-R-E-E-E, that kind of like scree sound. And then like chicka 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 of like the subway cars going by. 
in some ways it's kind of ridiculous because you're making a sound into letters. And some of them aren't as obviously onomatopoetic, making up your own kind of onomatopoeia type thing. And then just sort of saying to the illustrator, like, the sound is overwhelming and it's crushing this character. So you kind of give the illustrator as much information for what you want to indicate, which includes sound. In this case, the illustrator Nico Leon actually used color and the sort of shape and size of the letters to kind of, in the background, like taking up almost the whole background of the panel, putting these letters like scree and wah over the character so that it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and you get a sense of not just sound, but like the metaphorical thing that's happening on the page, which is the overwhelmingness of sound. Mariko developed her approach through physical expression. Her background is actually in spoken word and performance, so sonic devices and illustrative tactics have become almost second nature. She began with observation, which informed her writing. I mean, I started writing when I was in high school because I was incredibly unpopular and obsessed with Harry the Spy. And so I was always sort of a diarist, uh, observer, like early anthropologist uh, lurker. I think probably some of my fascination also with words and language probably comes from like a childhood of eavesdropping. <laughs> I was a very good eavesdropper as a little kid and I'm still like obsessed. I think the, the thing that I love the most about modern society is how much people are comfortable talking about very personal things on their cell phones when they're in very public places. To all those people out there, I appreciate you <laughs> and uh, please continue. So I started off in prose. When I went to school, I went to McGill University and started writing very bad poetry and then eventually gravitated to Toronto, where I had the fortune of actually, and I highly recommend this, I took a continuing education creative writing class. For all those people who think you need an MFA to be a writer, you don't need an MFA to be a writer. What you need is like an environment where you have to write, where you're sort of guided by somebody who has like more information and more knowledge about you than writing. So I took a continuing ed class with this woman named Ann Dechter, who was my first editor and put out a couple anthologies that I was in and then published my first novella. In continuing to do spoken word events, I eventually sort of transformed that into sort of writing essays and then eventually started working in theater because I wanted to sort of just do more things like be on the stage and do things that were slightly longer form. The way I got into comics was I, doing all this kind of theater stuff and this sort of like open mic stuff, I got to know this woman named Emily Polweary, who is uh, an incredible Canadian writer who used to run this magazine called Kiss Machine, which was a small literary magazine. Her goal was to sort of put together people who didn't necessarily have as much experience in comics and kind of give them a venue. But I think because I had done all this other stuff, like I had gone into theater without knowing anything about theater and, you know, started writing these essays and things like that without any, like, real professional experience, I was really into the idea of collaborating and working with somebody else. And also, I was really open to the idea of working in something that I didn't necessarily have any expertise in. I mean, it's been a really long journey. I think when I first started in comics, people were like, you're not really a comic book person. And now, like, it's been like 15 years and they're like, you're a comic book person. Like, only because it's been 15 years, but I didn't start out that way. Mariko's experience with spoken word guides her to consider each story from an auditory perspective. She's very thoughtful when it comes to understanding how her writing will sound out loud, both her dialogue and the noises or the lack of noise between lines. 
For me, the fascination is voices. So I think the thing that gets kind of long in terms of prose is description as opposed to talking. And that's sort of where I tend to lean in everything that I do. Because I started off in front of a microphone, I imagine language and I think of language in terms of not just like a sort of endless string of talk, but also space. Like a lot of what makes talk dramatic is the silences in between, right? I don't, I never thought of myself, but I think what I am is like a kind of aggressive storyteller. I think I've always included sound effects in my storytelling when I'm talking to people. But yeah, it never occurred to me that I was sort of obsessed with it until until I started doing this like a full-time job. And now I am definitely obsessed with it. More on Mariko's obsession in a moment. Performance comes in many flavors on the road. There's the amped up, overtuned kind, and in the new Lincoln Aviator, there's the kind that just leaves you feeling better overall, more relaxed, more uplifted, more alive. That's the kind of performance Lincoln's all about. Discover it today in the all new 2020 Lincoln Aviator. A lot of writers, myself included, find it helpful to read their work out loud after they've written it. Hearing how a sentence sounds allows for a more natural editing process. But when you're writing stories and graphic novels that rely heavily on the use of sound itself, this practice becomes especially important. I have a practice from writing prose of reading everything that I write out loud. And I think a lot of it comes from that. You just sort of say the word. Or when you're sort of describing a scene, like how somebody lands or like the crack of you know a bat against a plate glass window or something like that you're sort of describing it and I try to just sort of not worry about it and describe it to myself and then kind of go back and like write it in I think for me it only gets hard if I don't actually know what something sounds like I had a character uh, I think it was She-Hulk again I had her like jumping off of this building and then when she lands I was like well she's in running shoes she's landing on concrete and the concrete is like splitting beneath her feet so that I was like, what's that sound? I have no idea. It's not like womp, because the P implies like a soft landing, right? It's not like a cracking sound per se, because it also focuses on whatever's cracking. <laughs> so I put like three different things in there until it looked, you know, sometimes it is like a visual thing. And then other times I'll just also like talk to my illustrator because it is obviously a co-created medium. I'll be like, what do you think this sounds like? And they usually know. After working through some of the sounds on her own, Mariko sends the draft along to her team members, who offer their input on how sounds, both real and imaginary, should be conveyed. You write a script and then it, you know, goes to the person you're working with. And it's, you know, very much a continuation of the creative process. I mean, I actually didn't start writing sound effects until I wrote superhero comics because it was something that Jillian did in our sort of creative process. My favorite part of the comic book process, which is that it's two people's visions kind of being, you know, interpreted by each other, right? Like it's her interpreting what I wrote in the script. I think the thing that's really amazing about comics is that they are the product of two thoughts on a page. And I think that there's something about that experience, especially for me working with illustrators, that's really enlightening. That I feel like there's always something, you know, that I don't see or hear in a scene that 
gets unfolded in comics for me and in working on comics with somebody else. I think that the sort of like misnomer that a comic is written by somebody always sort of discredits that part of the process, which is that nothing is ever really sort of written by one person on the page. Whatever you see is multiple brushstrokes of like two people at least, or like even an editor as well, kind of like putting something together, which is the final product that you see. My cousin and I started saying co-created early in the process in order to clarify for some people who were sort of distinguishing between like the words and the art. Co-created is like a, the sound of that word is like my least favorite sounding word. Too many C's. It just doesn't sound very nice. But like the sentiment behind it is, I think, an important one, which is the sort of art of collaboration. People understand that when you see a movie or when you see a play, that there were sort of multiple people involved. And that's true of comics. Collaborating with others is essential when creating multidimensional work. Someone like Mariko could theoretically come up with plot, text, dialogue, and artistic conventions all on her own. But creating a work that is lively and uses each of these elements to the fullest is only possible with several people contributing. It's the dynamic of techniques working together that really makes the pages of a graphic novel come alive. Sometimes the utility is just to like sort of create a path for the reader to follow the story and follow what's happening. And in some cases, you could do that with captions, which are, you know, the sort of distinction from dialogue. They're sort of like a third person or like a voice that's not necessarily speaking. that's kind of like guiding you through. Sound is just like an extra piece of information. So, for example, if you have a character that is making a screaming face and is being sort of like yanked out of the panel... If you put a word like ga or like arg or something like that, then you get a sense of like what's going on with the character versus if you just have that image. Everything that you see on the page is information. I, as a writer, never want to interfere with the information that the illustration is already giving you. It's like sort of a back and forth process sometimes in terms of what exactly is going to go there. X23, the illustrator I work with, Lon Cabal, like incorporates the sound effects into the visuals. So uh, there's a scene where a character is kicking somebody and it says wham, but it's like a wham poster <laughs> behind what's happening. It's like sort of a shared vision of what you want to be seeing on the page. Sometimes, for example, it's kind of like a wink to the medium itself. In Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is like my favorite superhero movie from last year, there's a scene where the two Spider-Mans are running away and somebody throws a bagel back and it hits the scientist and it bounces off his head and it says bagel. Like there's a little sound effect. It doesn't, there's no sound, but it just says bagel, which is kind of a nod to the fact that like that's part of comics, right? It's like one of the things that comics does. I actually did a Spider-Man Venom comic uh, with Gurihiru called Double Trouble. And there's a scene where somebody throws their dentures and it bounces off Venom's head and it just says dentures. <laughs> Bagel, as a noise, may not be typical or self-explanatory. To Mariko, the most effective sounds on the pages of a comic book are those that play with our emotions. Onomatopoeias we wouldn't necessarily expect but that readers can recognize and relate to. I uh, read this book by Eleanor Davis, which I can't remember the title of, but it's about her biking across America. And there's scenes where the character is crying and you don't see her face, but you just see this line of O's like, ooh, 
that just like crawls from like the bottom of the page where the character is of the number of choices you have for writing somebody crying. There's something actually kind of like visceral about it. As soon as I saw that, I thought, not only do you know that this character is crying, but you actually can like get like this kind of gut sense of what not only that sounds like, but what it feels like. The thing that I love about reading comics is whenever you see somebody make a different choice around something like that versus just having someone afterward like a little sniff. Whenever you see somebody make a choice, to me it's kind of like a challenge. Like how can I reimagine or sort of revisualize what I'm deciding about what something sounds like? It is like a weird part of the job that sometimes I will hear a sound and I'll think like, how would you write that? <laughs> and people are like, what are you thinking about? And you're like, I don't want to tell you because it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> in order to be creative with the sound effects she uses in her work, Mariko must resist traditional boundaries around notions of acceptable speech. Creating realistic sounds and realistic dialogue means writing in ways that feel true to life. Sometimes that requires rejecting the rules. I think that there is a notion of language that's about a level of like authority and like a kind of established lexicon. This idea of language is appropriate. And I think part of playing with language is a reminder that it's like a flexible thing. Language is about communication. It's about understanding what someone is trying to convey to you. Putting together one plus two, like you see somebody's hand on a doorknob and you see C-L-I-C, so you know what that is. It's about conveying information, not about conveying information correctly, but like effectively. And I think that there's kind of a lot of policing around language about what is or isn't the proper way to speak or what a proper word is. And I come from, you know, at least on one side of my family, of, you know, very flamboyant talkers. And I love that. I love the sort of play with words. I love the way every generation has like a different way of, you know, being expressive or exclaiming or whatever. Doing that in comics is just a reminder to me that it's, it's just letters. As long as you understand what I mean, then, then we're good to go. Once Mariko decided it was okay to say farewell to language conventions, she found a whole new world of sounds available to her. I'm sort of infamous amongst people who know me for turning sounds into words. Like I, I have a t-shirt that says for pink on it because once I was describing to a bunch of friends the process of putting a bunch of pennies on a glass table. It's like, you know, it's like for pink, for pink, for pink. And they were like, what's that? And I was like, the sound that a penny makes on a glass table. <laughs> so I feel like another part of it is just like the fun of making up words pop or bang are words that are already within the sort of lexicon, but some of them are not, you know? And I think that that's kind of the malleability of it, because really all you're doing is communicating something to somebody, as long as it makes sense. As long as somebody can hear it, it doesn't have to be something that's already set in stone as being like a word that we all know. In the art world, it's often said that negative space is powerful and bold a serene rejection of the urge to occupy every last centimeter of a page. In stand-up comedy and spoken word, they say that a long break in the middle of a story is a useful way to build tension before releasing it. And in the world of graphic novels, the spaces between sounds are just as important as the sounds themselves. 
part of it, I think, is pragmatic because, I mean, and all editors have sort of different takes on this. I had an editor tell me once, like, you can't have a page of no sound. Unless you're really doing something, you know, in terms of the atmosphere needs to be kind of silent or eerie. Like if you have someone sort of creeping down a hallway, then you can have no sound. But if, for example, you have two characters that are fighting for two pages, if you don't put sound on that, then it becomes silent. Some editors believe, and I don't always necessarily agree, that you have to put something on the page so that people are following something so that it kind of creates a pathway to kind of follow through what they're seeing. Silence is kind of measured in comics. Like one of my favorite pages ever in comic, any comic that I've ever worked on, was a page in Skim, a full page, and it's snowing. The character of Skim has <laughs> written in the snow with her, like tromped out in the snow, a very Canadian scene, uh, like written out, like, I hate everything. And I think maybe something's crossed out, but it's like, you know, a very angry moment. But it's also a very silent, angry moment because she's not screaming, I hate everyone. She's writing it with her feet in the snow, which is like the quietest thing you can possibly do. And then the caption just says, because it's her diary, the caption just says, it's snowing. You know, as a reader, especially if you've ever been to Toronto in the winter, what that sounds like, that it is this very muffled, quiet moment. So it's like you get silence from the visual and you also get silence even though there is text. It's very small and it's so disconnected to what you're seeing that it feels like it's a very small, but very big lie. The interesting thing about comics is that you can have something that's very silent but also have text, right? Like if you have everything in captions, you can still keep things pretty silent. Every graphic novel Mariko has worked on, from skim to this one summer, began with a series of choices. Whether to stick to conventions that readers would recognize, or to reject conventions and come up with new expressions of sound. This fine balance between strategy and rebellion is part of what makes her work so exciting to read. You know, there's rules to comics, but part of the fun of any medium is breaking those rules and kind of playing with it. Like, dentures isn't a sound, but it's funny. <laughs> the kitschiness of it, like, you know, in the old Batman television show when they would have that bam, pal, like that whole thing, like kind of incorporating like visual canon and kind of playing with that. It's a fun reminder of like, that you're watching something that's constructed and it's sort of expressing the intricacies of the people who constructed it. The thing is, is that there's generations that are going to grow up having read such an incredible diversity of comics, I think, especially for younger readers. Now, younger readers have had access to this medium. Like, I've, I haven't gone to a kid's house in the past 10 years and not seen a graphic novel somewhere in their house. I grew up with Canadian literature, basically. I come from a very Alice Monroe place, which like makes me hard to be with at parties. Uh, so, um, and I think that there's going to be kids now who have grown up with, you know, like work by people like Molly Ostertag and Raina Tegelmeyer and Vera Broskal. These just like incredible comics that are really evocative portraits of the experience of being a kid. There's so much more literature out there that describes so many different ways of being a kid as opposed to the sort of singular portraits that were available. There were mostly just white kids, like when I was reading comics, white straight kids. And now there's so many different things out there. 
And I can't help but think that that will encourage more people to sort of see themselves working in the medium. I think it's easier to imagine your place in something when you can see yourself in it. When I was younger, if you had like sort of a specific perspective and you wanted to share that, you had to make a comic and then, you know, hopefully you worked at an office where you could use a photocopier and then you photocopy it like 50 times and staple it together and, you know, hand it out. And now millions of people read your thoughts and your perspectives on something, you know, immediately. Having an audience for a specific point of view is, is an awesome thing. As graphic novels continue branching out to more and more audiences, the language conventions used within them do the same. Sound in graphic novels has a dual purpose. A practical purpose, to convey a sense of action, and a metaphorical purpose, to impart a sense of emotion. There was like a panel that Jillian Tamaki wrote click, but with C-L-I-C. And there was something about that which sort of also indicates abbreviatedness to it. In this scene, the main character, Skim, has just gotten into a fight with her best friend, Lisa. And in this argument, Lisa accuses Skim of having an affair with her teacher. The two exchange passive-aggressive remarks. Skim cancels her plans with Lisa for the afternoon. They agree to meet after school, and they part ways. Click. The door closes as Lisa walks away, dissatisfied. Language and sound are all sort of visceral, in as much as you understand that a word like click, C-L-I-C-K, is the word click, but also that it's a thing that you hear. It's not necessarily a reference that you have to know because you've read Oedipus, <laughs> whatever it is but that you know from being a person in the world what these sounds are and what they feel and sound like. That sense of relatability you feel when you see words on a page that cleverly capture a sound you've heard before or a very specific feeling you've experienced, be it delight or disappointment, are where Mariko finds joy in connection to her readers. There's an element of solace within the sounds Mariko weaves into these stories. We've all felt fear. We've all felt loneliness and adventure. We've all felt rejected some time or another, as the girls in this one summer feel when they overhear a party they weren't invited to. We all know that sense of confusion and shock when a friend or partner storms out of an argument, leaving you to sit with what just happened, like Lisa does to Skim. Mariko uses recognizable sounds, like the crunch of pebbles, the sound of distant laughter, and the click of a door closing, to evoke memories and connection, so that we can relate to these characters. In relating to these characters, we learn more about ourselves. Those feelings of individual experiences being recognized and shared are an important part of the sound of graphic novels. Special thanks to our guest, Mariko Tamaki, to our show producers, Monica Bialobrewski, Carl Solis, and Audrey Carlton, our sound designer, Alex Glutch, and our audio engineer, Kira Corbett. I'm your host, Carly Lewis. Thanks for listening.